one of the reasons the UK advertising, creative advertising, and not just creative advertising, but the, the UK advertising industry has always been so strong and, and on a global scale, on a global stage, is because of exactly what you've described, which is it sits within a disproportionately large, let's say. Uh, 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 ecosystem of creative businesses, particularly in London, but not just in not just in London. And I and I always think that you know that you know I think there's that quote by Isaac Newton. You know, if I've seen further, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. You know, and I think that the I think that the the UK advertising creative community um, benefits enormously from sitting within that community of filmmakers, uh, television makers, uh, fashion designers, you know, artists, you know, um, dance studios, theatres, all of these things create a, create an environment that allow creative in the creative industries to thrive. Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Our guest today on Great Minds is Chris Hurst. And Chris, uh, we're going to start right with the book and leadership, Chris, because that is, you know, topic A, B, and C as far as I'm concerned for what's going on in our world right now. But Chris has had an incredible career. He's worked for some of the most legendary agencies that the modern era has ever seen. Uh, entities like Fallon, like BBH, like Gray and had an incredible run at Gray, uh, and now doing a phenomenal job globally uh, for Havas. But you just wrote a book, No Bullshit Leadership. I did. Let's start, let's start right there, Chris, yeah. because that is the commodity that is most in short supply right at the moment when arguably the world needs it the most. Well, that's kind of, that, that, I mean, I, I wrote it, I don't know, I started writing it... Um, uh, uh, I think uh, three years ago now, um, uh, and I think one of the first things, well, the first, the, I think the first thing I wrote was uh, the last thing the world needs right now is another book on leadership. Uh, but but I, I kind of figured we could we could afford just one more into the lexicon. But the, the second sentence I think I wrote was, you know, we need more better leaders everywhere. Um, uh, and uh, you know, and that was three years ago. So uh, look at where we are now. And my my premise. I suppose is is that uh, is that when typically when we think about leaders, um, you know, we think about uh, presidents or uh, you know dot com billionaires or generals, you know, or, or things like that, or CEOs. And my, my premise is is that most people in leadership positions aren't those people. You know, my, my premise is is that anybody that has people they're responsible for. Uh, can consider themselves to be a leader, whether that's uh, three people, whether that you're running a ward in a hospital, a, a Sunday league football team, you know, you're a leader. Um, but um, but a lot of uh, the, uh, which means there's 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 millions of, of these what I call everyday leaders, um, you know, in the US, around the world, tens of millions. 
Uh, and, and yet I think a lot of those people don't think of themselves as leaders, firstly. And I think second of all, I think what I, I talk about as being the leadership industrial complex, uh, you know, and that's kind of consultants and business schools and training programs and books, you know, and I've been to a business school and I've written a book. So I'm talking to myself a bit here as well, you know, make a lot of money, uh, billions of dollars from, from, from telling us the subject is really, really, really uh, for a chosen few. You know, you have to have been walked the corridors of uh, uh, of the White House or something to be a leader. Um, and I'm calling bullshit on that because the, the, the problem, I think the, there's two problems from that. I think the first is that that, ex that inhibits a lot of people in leadership positions from fulfilling their potential. And I think secondly, worse than that, it says to huge chunks of society, leadership isn't something that people like you can aspire to. So, you know, it's not for you. Uh, and I tried, I suppose in the book, I tried to burst that bubble a little bit. Great. So talk about, you know, it's so interesting for people that haven't written books, which is most of us. <laughs> Take us through that process from the initial idea. Do you frame it out sort of start to finish? Do you have a sense as to the ebb and flow at the beginning or does it evolve along the way? Uh, well, no, no. In, in my case, uh, in my case, it certainly wasn't something that I that I uh, that I set and sat and wrote a structure for in advance. What, what I did have, what I did, I, I tell you, I, the catalyst was, I got asked to do a presentation on leadership. So again, this is you know three years ago or something. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for such a warm welcome. Um, before I begin, uh, and I, somebody said, "Will you come and talk for twenty minutes on leadership?" I said, "Yeah, absolutely, no problem." And like a lot of us, let's let's have a moment of confessional. Like a lot of us, you know, I then didn't think much about it until about three days beforehand, and thought, you know, right, hang on, I better think of what to say. Where Northumberland is, it's the top of England, the bottom of Scotland, and, and I and I discovered that that I was actually one of three people who'd been asked to talk about leadership. Two other kind of very big sort of luminaries, and I was in the middle. So somebody was talking before me, somebody was talking after me. And so I thought, shit, actually, this has suddenly become competitive. How do I find something to say that isn't just the same old stuff on leadership, basically? Uh, but, uh, but I do think that some of the changes we're seeing in our uh, businesses, in our brands, in our society, I think some of those changes really are um, quite profound. Uh, and um, I think a big part of that change for us can be summed up in this word. I mean, we've just talked about purpose. So, I, so think, um, I, I did a 20 minute presentation. It was fine. And I, and I got back home and I woke up in bed, I think on the Saturday, on the Saturday morning. And I thought, you know what, I, maybe I can make a book out of that. And the title, no, Bull, no bullshit leadership, you know, popped into my head. Um, and in actual fact, over the process of writing the book, I, 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 I actually flip-flopped, we can talk about that if you like, but I flip-flopped a bit about whether that was the right title uh, to put on the cover of the book. But what it did do is it provide, It was actually a really useful, uh, powerful title to write to, if that makes sense. So so as you're writing, you're thinking, you're, you, you're sort of contrasting it to that, you know, and, and is this, is, if, if I, when I read what I write, when I'm writing, does it sound like bullshit or not? You know, I mean, in, in, are the sacred cows that I can kind of kill? You know, are the, are the, are the, uh, you know, what um, what cliches can I dispense with? So it allowed me to be quite iconoclastic. So it was, it was great in terms of direction, and it was great in terms of tone, uh, if you see what I mean. 
All right, so let's take a let's dial the clock back a little bit. Um, you got great academic background, Oxford, and then later Harvard, and I think you graduated around ninety four. Started yeah. working at started working at BBH around ninety six. Yeah. What happened in nineteen ninety five? Ah, well, nineteen ninety five. That's not a very sadly not that interesting story, but I'll tell I'll tell you it. Um, I actually actually my first agency uh, was an agency uh, called Still Price Lintas, um, which Lintas then became I think eventually ended up becoming part of Low. Uh, I think Amirati Pure. You know, I can't remember. It got bought and bought and merged, but Lintas was uh, originally. Uh, back in the day, it was Lever International Advertising Services or something like that. So Lintas had been unilever, but you know, th- there's no there's no new thing under the sun, right? So we talk about in-housing and all of that now. Well, Lintas had been Unilever's in-house advertising agency that Unilever had sold off uh, or floated or whatever it was they did that so it became a, a standalone agency. Uh, and at that point, and, and they still had a lot of Unilever clients. Uh, and I did about a year there. Um, it, actually, initially, uh, as a, uh, they hired me as an account planner. I, I, was a, I was a planner to start with. Uh, and I think that's mainly because I did a degree in engineering. And they went, oh, he's obviously sort of, you know, good at maths or something. Yeah. <laughs> so they, so they, uh, they stuck me in planning. I, of course, I had no idea what planning was or anything at that point. Um, and then, and then I, and then I went, I moved to BBH. So there's nothing very, nothing very exciting. What, what I did do actually in the year between school and university, uh, I actually did work in a factory for a year. So my first job, um, back in those days, because I did a degree in engineering, I was actually sponsored, which through university by a, a big glass company, a company called Pilkington Glass. Um, and uh, they they are based in the sort of very industrial northwest of England. Uh, and I worked as a essentially an apprentice uh, for, for, for 12 months for them on the shop floor, working shifts in kind of overalls. And, you know, we used to wear uh, clogs because uh, because of the heat of the furnaces would melt rubber soled shoes. You know, I learned to weld and uh, oxyacetylene burn and heavy current engineering and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I did that for a year and then uh, university and then. And even though that was only one year of a career that's now you know, give or take 30 years old, I'll bet you there were things you learned there that are different from everywhere else. Oh, uh, uh, with the, without question. I mean, you know, a, a, a huge amount, really. I, I mean, you know, it was, it was, uh, you know, the, I, I, I learned, I learned how, honestly, and to be, to be direct about it, you know, I grew up in, in a very rural part of the country. Um, and so I had a real culture shock when I moved from a very rural part of the country into a, into a, into a sort of what I would describe, I suppose, if we, I, I don't know, I'm trying to avoid using cliches, but I suppose a skilled working class environment where I was, I was, a, I was working as an apprentice with guys who had sort of time served uh, craftsmen, whether that be electricians or fitters or, or whatever it was. Uh, and their job was to, run these factories and a glass factory is a huge furnace at one end that's at about i don't know a couple of thousand degrees c and this 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 huge long process of taking the glass out of the furnace and shaping it cutting it whatever uh but i learned about 
parts of, you know, I, I lived and worked, and honestly, to be direct, you know, I went to Oxford afterwards, but I lived and worked with people who I wouldn't in my everyday life live and work with. I learned about parts of the country I wouldn't have learned. I learned how factories work, what it's like working in a factory. Um, and, you know, the kind of the, the just the, the difference of that world to the world that I certainly am in now. Um, and honestly, I actually loved it. I mean, I, I really, really enjoyed that year. You know, I really did. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was a great year. But it sounds like spending time with just well, regular people, in, in, that that was, that was a big part I of think it. it. Yeah, I think it was. Um, you know, I mean, at that point as well, my, uh, you know, my upbringing and my parents, you know, it, it, it never occurred to me at, at that point in my life that I wouldn't essentially end up working in a, in a factory uh, because that's just the only job. I, I mean, it was either working on a farm, I was in a rural community, and my dad and his parents and what have you had always worked in uh, worked in industry let's say um and that, I, that was just what people went and did when they you know you, you, that was what jobs were right um and it, and it and it wasn't I mean I always joke with people people say to me you know well how did you end up in advertising and really the truth is I did a year there and I did enjoy that year I then did four years at university doing a degree in engineering um but and the one thing I knew with absolute certainty at the end of that five years was I didn't want to be an engineer. So that was basically the thing I learned. I was this is fine, but I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. And I think I, I think I ended up doing advertising because it was as far away as I could imagine and find from working, uh, you know, as an engineer in a factory. I don't think there's any more science to it than that. Fantastic. And yet today, engineers are such a big part of the industry in a different way, right? We, 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 uh, well, I, actually, it's funny you should say that because I, I clearly remember. So, you know, this is tragically showing my age. I clearly remember getting to university uh, in 1990. And uh, I did a degree called engineering science, which meant that we did uh, pre a little bit of everything. So we did electrical and a mechanical and civil and, co and computing science, uh, as it was then. And so we go, we get taken into the, the uh, kind of computer lab, if you like, and we get given at the time these top of the end, not for hours, but we get seated at what was at the time a top of the end uh, computer, Sun Microsystems, as they were then. I think actually Facebook are now on the campus that was the Sun Microsystems campus. Um, and, uh, and anyway, so the, the guy at the front says, right, I'm going to give you all now something called an email address and we sort of get given this thing and it's kind of you know it's not our names it's a row of numbers and I remember getting given this thing and thinking what on earth use is this ever going to be and I in the whole time I was there I sent one email which presumably was rude and unrepeatable to the person sitting next to me and that you know that that was that so yeah, if only I'd paid attention, I I could be uh, I could I could now be on the Facebook campus, you know, coding. But, uh, yeah, that Facebook campus because we started Advertising Week in two thousand four, and Facebook was engaged with us almost from the very beginning. I'm going to say two thousand five, two thousand six. There was a whole regime that's uh, long gone uh, from there. But I used to go out and visit them, and. The first Facebook office I went to was above a storefront in Palo Alto. 
you know, it'd be like a row of stores and there'd be that door with stairs. Sometimes people lived up there. Sometimes yeah. it was a little commercial space. Yeah. Uh, and that was the whole thing. Oh, really? And then every time wow. I would go, they would, mo- they would have moved. And I'll go, where are they now? You know, and I don't even think you had navigation to save yeah, in your phone. Yeah, I think then yeah. you were still, you know, fumbling yeah. with, a, with a map or something. And, and, uh, and the last time I went, I go out once a year. They're a big global partner of ours. And I go have, you know, a, a, a meal or a drink with David Fisher. Mm. And I always go out and see him yeah. in December. And last time I went, it was that old Sun Microsystems, yeah. yeah, which is like a whole city. Yeah, it's like exactly, it's a city. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, even the street names, <laughs> like they, 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 they're like they yeah. are in control of the street yeah. signs. Yeah, but it, you it know? makes me. I don't. I, 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 I hesitate to say this because it's going to make me sound somewhat pretentious. But there's that. There's that. Uh, there's that poem, isn't there? Look upon my works, ye mighty in despair. This kind of memento mori. Uh, poem Ozymandias and, and I and I walk around that campus and you can still see the sort of Sun Microsystems branding and you think hang on is this if you're if you're working there as somebody else you walk around and go hang on a minute you know 10 years ago they were heroes and you know is that yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> well I, I you know I think they do a good job as a company of certainly staying engaged with their customers but but your point is valid I remember in 87 um, JC Penney was moving from New York, which was a big retailer, uh, from New York to Plano, Texas. And I was going to Plano for some amusement business. Then I wanted to be in the music business. And there was an old trade book. I think it's gone now. Sort of like Variety or Hollywood Reporter, but for the music business and the, um, and the, you know, uh, the theme park business, all that stuff called amusement business. And they had a conference and I scraped together enough money to buy myself a plane ticket and register and go. And I remember out of curiosity, I, did I have a rental car? I don't know how I got there, but I went to see where is JCPenney moving to? What is Plano, Texas? Mm. And it was a big cow field. (laughs) And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I don't know if that's a good idea. You know, if you're a company like that, don't you need to like have your people have lunch with their customers and, you know, who are you going to have lunch with, <laughs> you know, other than people that have the same, yeah. you know, metaphorically email addresses you yeah. do. And not that I'm, you know, uh, you know, a, a seer of the future, but that company has not done well the last couple of years. And I think they just filed for bankruptcy. Mm. Well, yeah. I mean, wh- it's, isn't it? And, and it, that's an interesting segue to now, isn't it? That suddenly, suddenly people are saying, actually, do you know what? All that stuff that that doesn't matter as much anymore. You know, maybe, maybe we can all sit at home and we don't we don't need that. Yeah, we don't yeah, need that same world. human interaction that we thought we needed. Um, and uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure where I stand on that debate. I mean, I, I still think I'm. I, I, by the way, I, I think it's not a. Bi- I think first of all, where I stand is I think it's not a binary question. I don't think it was. I don't think one is completely right and one is completely wrong, but I do think that um, some level of continued, you know, face to face human reaction, sorry, human interaction, um, uh, with customers, with colleagues, with your boss, with the people that work for you, uh, with your team. Um, I think is vital, even if even if that I'm sure won't be in the same way that it used to be uh, necessarily in the same places that it used to be. But yeah, I, I, yeah. 
uh, so, I think it matters. So where were you before all this uh, COVID-19 on the whole WFH culture? Were you, did a lot of your people want to work from home? And what, what did you feel about that? Did you do that? Were you uh, going to the office five days a week, guy, if you weren't traveling or? Um, I, I was mostly, when I wasn't traveling, I mean, when I wasn't traveling was a big if, because I mean, I was probably, I mean, the traveling thing's a whole separate thing. You know, I mean, I was out of the country, out of the UK, easily more than a hundred days last year. So at least a third of the time. Um, so so in actual fact, well, you know, that's not from home. But what I found was I was spending and I was having an awful lot of my interactions via already via video screens, because, you know, if I, you know, for, for obvious reasons, um, I so I but I, I worked mostly in the office. I definitely wasn't an in the office every single day, nine to five, but I was mostly in the office. Um, that said, I. I was, you know, I would, I would work from home at various points. If I'd been traveling a lot, you know, I might work from home for three days because I hadn't seen the family. And I think in our, in, in our agency, and I would say our agency is probably typical. I would say that most people uh, would work from home some of the time. Uh, you know, I think that it wasn't like some weird thing. I think our industry has always been, again, generalizing pretty good at allowing people to you know i don't know whether it be creatives going and you know doesn't matter where you come up with the idea just come up with the idea or what have you so i think i think the i think the difference and i, I suspect i don't know but i suspect that does that that's similar for for many industries i think the difference was and the difference will be i still think the vast majority of people were in the office the vast majority of the time i think that was true of nearly all businesses that would be true of ours as well. Um, and I think the difference was, of course, suddenly everybody's out all the time. So you do, you, we were in this binary, basically everybody was in all the time and then everybody was out all the time. And we, we, we're still having that debate, I think, in those binary terms. And I think we're going to move, I think we'll move to a world that is somewhere between the two. Um, I think yeah. it's, it's not easy to say exactly where, though. Yeah, I was not a big fan of that, you know, cultural movement overall. I think you come to work. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And some of that is age, right? I'm yeah, 55. Yeah. So yeah. that's definitely a generational yeah. Yeah. age thing. But I guess now, uh, like many, I am a full convert mm. to the notion that you can be just as productive yeah. this way, yeah. you know, in a completely different way. Yeah. The travel, you know, is a tough one. I mean, I traveled, you know, quite a bit also. And... Uh, it was like a real jolt, like, okay, you're now grounded. You know, Lance, uh, my partner and I came home from the only advertising week that took place as initially conceived uh, this year, which was advertising week LATAM in Mexico City and landed on March 7th and haven't been on a plane since and hadn't been to the office, you know, in 90 days until last week. So that's a real jolt. Um, to the system, and I, I miss the travel. Uh, I I miss I I miss travel. I don't miss it that much. As in, sorry, I don't miss it in that volume. Um, I mean, I, I travelled an awful lot last year, uh, um, and I I definitely think when we're able to, I will. You know, I, I think business travel 
is is important it is important to go and see people you, you have a totally different relationship with people who when you are physically with them to talking to them over a screen i mean that's like just so obvious it doesn't need saying but there is so but certainly i won't go back to the amount that i that i was doing um and i and, and i think that that's what a lot i think that's where a lot of people are going to are going to end up to be honest with you um and it, and it you know why I think that's a good thing. I think if people if people get to spend more time with their kids, uh, if people don't have to spend an hour, an hour and a half on the you know on the train or you know on the bus or something like that. First of all, it's that's a shit, you know pretty low quality of life experience <laughs> sitting jammed on a commuter train. But second of all, that's two hours of their time that they could be doing something else, whether that be something in their life or, or or working more effectively in order for them to be able to get some more time off elsewhere. So I think I think some aspects of flexibility allow us to be more efficient. I think we do lose some aspects though. And I think that's the balance. And I, and I do think that 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 when I hear people say, actually we've worked perfectly effectively from home, I think I think we've got by you know, we've got through it. And I'm not just talking about Habas, I'm talking about our societies. You know, we've sort of got through it. Some industries, some sectors hit harder than others. But I definitely don't think we are uh, as a business, and I would contend this for any people-based business, I don't think you are as effective if all you are is at home. That's what I think. All right, so let's dial back again a little bit you spent time at three incredibly iconic shops, worked with some of the true great minds the industry has ever produced. Uh, I want to spend more time talking about the present and what you're doing now, but I'd be remiss not to ask, give us a reflection on your tenure at BBH, a reflection mm. on your tenure at Fallon, and, and then we'll go on to Gray. So I, so I, I was at BBH in, uh, I think, 90, is literally the, literally the back end of last century. Wow. Um, so I think 96 to 99. Um, and, and I think at that point, you know, and by the way, I was an account director. So everything I say, I'm not taking the credit for. I was a minion in a, in a, in a well-established uh, machine. But I, I think at that point, BBH was give or take the best agency in the world. I've always been very competitive. Well, I don't want to hear that, do I? So I got where I am. Money can't buy happiness. At the end of the day, you've got to look after number one to survive. 700 on eight. Every man for himself, right? Yeah, the right car is important to me. I think that it does impress people. Money? Nothing to be ashamed of. If you've got it, flaunt it. Cheers. <laughs> the places you go, the clothes you wear, the people you're seen with, the car you drive. Well, what do you think? Nah, it's not really my style. You know what I mean? Gabby, tell Charles I'm on my way. Taxi! Um, you know, I mean, it, it really was. It was an absolute machine. And and I think probably more than any other agency I've ever worked in or known, it was just so incredibly professional. I mean, in some ways, it 
it bucks the trend of our expectations of what a, a creative business should be. You know, we, our stereotypes of creative businesses are sort of, you know, kind of chaotic and this gene, genius happens, but it happens in this kind of chaotic and the you know, account management's bad. And, you know, everybody argues with each other all the time and it's kind of all a bit sort of toxic, but Hey, you get some genius at the end of it. And BBH wasn't like that at all. I mean, BBH had the best account management, you know, department in the world it had the best planning department in the world and it had the best creative department in the world and that's because it had Bartle, Bogle and Hegarty at the top each of whom were absolutely you know top of their game and and you know and I just and I think I, I think I learned from that you know I took from BBH it was a very formative part of my career and I think I I a lot of my beliefs in terms of of what just good best practice in terms of the fundamentals of our business are. Um, and, I, and I left BBH in, in 99 um, and I went and joined Fallon in London. Fallon at that point were obviously a very, very well-established big agency in Minneapolis and I think New York at that point. Um, and, and Fallon London, I, I, I joined about six months after Fallon opened its doors in London. So there was probably about, um, I don't know, let's take 10 of us, um, five partners and the rest of us, basically. So, and, 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 I, and I look back at, at the two now, and I think that being at BBH was like sitting in the back of a bed. You, you, if, if you're doing, both of them were very, very, very good businesses. Um, uh, but if you take an analogy of a, of a Bentley versus a motorbike, if you're doing 90 miles an hour in the back of a Bentley, you know, you can, you know, it's completely silent, you know, you can sip a, you can sip a champagne and, you know, uh, but it all just works and you just need to do your part of it. And Fallon was like being on the back of a motorbike and doing 90 miles an hour, right? So there's a wind through your hair, it's kind of scary. You might fall off when you go around the corner, you never quite know what's coming next. And so, and, and, you know, because it was a startup business and that, you know, in startups, that's how startups feel. So it, it gave me two completely different perspectives of sort of trying to achieve the same thing, which was, you know, they both had this uh, very, you know, this absolute, um, uh, you know, single minded focus on an almost a purity of thought and philosophy around around the primacy of creative, even though they, they, they produce different types of work. And, and while the cultures, as you say, were vastly different, one of the other common strands of DNA that binds the two is they produced tremendous talent Yes, that is still working today. What was it about the cultures in both of those places that produced such a tremendous list of alumni? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, and I, I wish I had a super eloquent answer for that because if I did, I, I, maybe I would try and uh, replicate that you know, in, our, in our own business. I, I think that I did read a report when I was writing my book, actually. I, I, I think I came across, I, unfortunately, I can't, I can't remember where, but I came across this piece of research that somebody said one of the, one of the most important factors when somebody's starting their career whoever you are, in, in whoever you are in whatever industry you choose, one of the most important factors that determine whether you go on to be a high achiever in your own career is whether or not your first boss is a high achiever. Um, so, you know, so, you know, that, that formative experience. And I, and I think, 
you know, I think talent begets talent. You know, I, I think those businesses, by the time I joined BBH, you know, they, I mean, they, they could just take their pick of, at that point of anybody that they wanted. And, and I think Fallon similarly came over, you know, I think startups, uh, particularly when a startup with a, you know, with a lot of expectation around it already arrived with a great name. It was Fallon McGilligan, in fact, at the time. Um, you know, I think that they also, obviously they were hiring fewer people in BBH, but they also could take their pick. So I think that, you know, you start off with, even at Fallon in a small context, you start off with a proportionately very high percentage of very talented people. And if you, if you, if the business is seeded in that way, I think that, that, that you a attract above average people, but, but in fact, what the more important than that is your ability, you know, that great talent builds great talent. And I think that's how it works. So then you have this incredible run at Gray and mm. won every award there is in the business and not just the ones from sort of the endemic award givers, but from beyond, you know, noticed mm. by the greater creative ecosystem, you know, mm. the fast companies and, the, mm -hmm. you know, a whole nother level of achievement beyond the trades. What was so magical about that run at Gray? So that's, that, I think that's a, that's a great question. I, I mean, for me, so I was at Gray for, for quite a long time, having been at uh, BBH and Fallon for about three or four years each. Um, I joined, I joined Gray in London in 2003 um, as part of a, as part of a, a turnaround leadership team. You know, we, we were, we were, we were hired as a group. There was five of us, and Gray in London, like, like Gray in New York at the time, uh, was you know, put, put politely, <laughs> was safe but dull, um, and and I think that was that's the most polite thing you could say about it. I'm not even sure it was that safe, and you know, our task was turn this agency round. You know, it's the unfixable business. Go fix it. And the short the short answer to this is that six years later, 2008, 2009, um, the other people that I joined with uh, had all, this is London now, they'd all moved on, uh, all of them, by the way, to stellar, stellar careers. Um, so, you know, hugely successful and hugely talented people. But, but for various reasons, that team just hadn't come together. Um, I'd stayed... If I'm honest with you, I think I stayed because I didn't really have the courage to leave. And I should have left. In rational terms, I should have left. And in 2000, about 2009, uh, they, they passed me over to be CEO several times, which I was, as an ambitious person, pissed off about. But looking back, I think they were probably right. I wasn't ready and I wasn't right. I was the managing director, so I was the sort of number two. And I... And I I was passed over again and I went to went to my boss or my the Europe head of Europe and I said, look, I get the message. You know, I, I I hear you. You don't think that I'm the right person for that for that CEO role. I've been here six years. The agency is still the same, frankly, shit business it was six years earlier. I can't claim anymore to be part of the solution. Honestly, I think after six years, you you're part of the problem. Um and in fact, I I Again, I'm going to cut the story short, but I, I persuaded them to allow me to go to Harvard, and I went and I went and did the AMP program at Harvard, which is an eight-week uh, residential program, which genuinely changed my life. Um, and that's probably the only event I can comment on, say that about in my life. I mean, it really was that 
that significant. Um, and it was that significant because not of all the things you'd expect, it, it was it was significant because it's, it cuts you off from all aspects of your life, your family, your friends, your work, everything. It's a deliberately, completely immersive experience. And what I realized was that when you cut all that stuff away, all that's holding you back is just stories in your head. All that baggage is stories in your head. You can just walk into a room and be anybody you want because nobody knows who you are. And it's an astonishingly liberating thing. Like that, that's not many times you have that opportunity in your life. Um, and I've always remembered that. And anyway, blah, blah, blah. I came, I, I came back to Gray determined to leave. Uh, you know, so that's it. Great. I'm going to, they made me sign a year's thing to stay for a year. And I was determined at the end of that, I would leave. And anyway, basically my boss's boss retired. Uh, my boss got promoted into her job, as head of Europe. And he said, look, Chris, we'll give you a go. We'll make you the CEO. So that was in 2010. And, and, and so the, the piece that you're talking about really was from 2010 to, I suppose, 15, where we did go on this incredible run. But it, but for me, it's the, the great story for me personally, is important to me because it is it really in a, I know it's a cliche but a proper contrast of two halves a first half of real right. failure right and, and a dark I was in a dark place I mean I thought I'd screwed my career and then the second half I suppose what I was determined was at that point when I became a CEO that I didn't necessarily have a really clear vision of what I wanted to do at that I, on, on day one I didn't um, but what I was determined to do was I, I, I wasn't going to remake any of those mistakes that I had seen being made for the preceding six years. So my strategy was almost whatever we did, then we do the opposite. You know, we just we just be iconoclastic. We've got nothing to lose. Let's smash it all up. Let's pull it all down. Let's let's you know, we've got nothing to lose. So let's go for it. Um, and but of course. What, what really happened in London, and it happened in New York at the same time with Tor uh, as the as the uh, as the creative head in New York, by a bit of luck and a bit of design, because you always need a bit of luck. Uh, we had a, a team in London that really gelled and was super talented, and at the same time, we had a team in New York who were really gelled and was super talented. And in actual fact, we we spurred each other on. We had a kind of a healthy. You know, uh, you know, we wanted New York to do well, but not quite as well as us. They wanted us to do well, but not quite as well as them. And we, we kind of drove each other forward. Um, and, and because I think ultimately agencies, I look at it now and I think every agency, every, you could say this any business in some ways, I think, but certainly every agency that I go and see, if agencies have problems, they're always the same problems everywhere. Agencies are always the same problems and the solutions to those problems, they're always the same solutions. Um, and, and it starts with, have you got uh, an effective team at the top of the business? If you don't have an effective team at the top of the business, it's not going to work. I mean, you can, you can wrap it up however you like, but that's, that's what it's about. Fantastic. Yeah, no, it still comes down to the people. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, enti- it's nearly entirely that, I think. Now you sit on top of a huge global creative empire. Uh, and it's almost like you're, you know, a general at the top commanding, you know, battalions across every continent. Give us your take on the current state and let's put the COVID-19 era aside, but just the general current state of the creative side of our business. Incredible pressure financially, uh, the walls between creative and media have come crashing down like in Jericho all those years ago in the Bible. 
where are we right now from where you sit? Uh, so I am, I'm a big, I mean, you, know, you may not be surprised to hear me say this. We've just talked about Fallon and BBH. Um, I'm a big, big fan of creativity, creative agencies, the transformative power of creativity. And, and I actually think that, and by the way, I, I think I could apply this even within taking into account COVID. I think that creativity and creative agencies, clients, brands and clients want and need and will pay for real creative solutions. Um, and, and I think the, we might be in a position where we find a sort of an aspect of a kind of, a, like in other sectors, a kind of a death of the middle a little bit. I mean, I think there's, there's large parts of our industry, well, large parts, that might be a bit unfair, Let, let's not quantify it, but there are parts of our industry that, that I think use the word creative to, de to define the sector they're in rather than what they actually are. And I think the, the businesses that really are creative businesses, you know, those businesses I genuinely think will thrive and they'll continue to thrive. Does that mean that there's things that we need to do differently? Of, of course. Um, but I think at the end of the day, uh, that, that, you know, I, I am a kind of a child of BBH in this sense, you know, I, I, I do fundamentally believe that a great strategist and great account management and great um, uh, creativity, you know, I always think three people can win a pitch of any, you know, no matter how big the, the pitch is, three people can win it. That doesn't mean they, you need other people running around, but, you know, and, and it is that triumvirate, I think, is so powerful. And when you get that magic, you can see an agency or a business when that magic's there and it happens. And it just starts to flow and starts to work. Now, that said, I think you mentioned the, you mentioned the sort of the, 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 the breaking down of these boundaries between media and creative. But, but there are other, you know, there, there are others as well. There's the whole um, what we call the CX space, you know, the consumer experience space. What's the role what's the role of data in creativity you know is, is a is a question to get asked all the time so so i i do think that we uh that the successful creative agencies need to be absolutely you know deeply curious and deeply open to embracing all sorts of new ways of thinking ways of working um, you know, how do they embed data into their business? How do they partner effectively with, with media agencies, for example, other agencies as well, uh, which, which, which continues to be easier said than done, you know, because, because partly because of how client organizations continue to organize themselves, you know, client organizations continue to, to split those two. Um, and, you know, and I think a lot of times agency agencies, I was going to say agency groups, but just agencies generally get get a hard time over not being integrated enough, but actually a lot of the barriers to that, I think still sit in client organizations. So long answer your question, in short, I'm, on, on, I'm an optimist, but boy, is, the, is the, the rate of change increasing and boy, are the do the best agencies continue to need to be curious and open to change. The company that you lead is part of a much larger global mothership. Uh, and you have on paper, competitive advantages and opportunities being part of Vivendi and Universal Music and, you know, so many other, you know, phenomenal global forces in, you know, not to, you know, bury this deeply, but, you know, in creative industry. 
how does that, is there any actual synergy that happens? Um, are you in a different position if you look at, you know, the, your holding company relative to the others who don't have the benefit of being part of, you know, that larger mothership in other industries? How does it really work? Is there any benefit to you on a day-to-day basis and to your clients? Or is it just something that's kind of financial and lives with accounting? Um, no, it's definitely not. It's definitely not that. Um, I, 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 I'll, I'll give you there's, there's sort of two broad observations I'll make. The first is I think that, just, you know, is, is there a benefit? Leaving aside, as you say, leaving aside any of the synergy points, any of that, I'll come to that in a second. Is there a benefit to our business being part of that group does that does just being part of that give us competitive advantage yeah i think it definitely does because we we're part of a, an extremely diversified group in that regard um and there's there's no question in terms of the ownership structure and into the bollare family and group that gives us competitive advantage we're like able to take a far longer term view on matters i think um as well as you know the closeness to the proximity that that that, that we get to the, the bollare so all of that is in itself a um, a competitive advantage. Then there's, I suppose, the, the the real heart of your question, which is, yeah, okay, I buy that, but on a day to day basis, what? How are your clients feeling that? Um, I would give us at the moment. I'd probably give us, you know, I don't know, like six out of ten at the moment in terms of making the most of what I think is possible. So, have we produced pieces of work? or even solutions for our clients that wouldn't have been possible had we not been part of, particularly um, a, a sister of Universal Music, but it's not, not just Universal Music, but have we been able to do things that we wouldn't have been able to do were it not for being partners with them? Definitely we have. I mean, we've done stuff, and we've done stuff for, for, for big clients, you know, for Rekha Benkiza, for Molson Coors. You know, we've got examples where we, there are things we just wouldn't have been able to do. That, that said, I still, you know, one of the things that I, you know, that still, you know, really gets me out of bed in the morning is the fact that I think there are so much more opportunities that we could, that we could take advantage of uh, for ourselves and for our clients. I mean, I think the convergence between brands, uh, entertainment and technology, you know, I think that that is, you know, that's a huge macro trend we're all absolutely familiar with and talking about. And, and we in our business, we have, you know, we have all of those sides of the triangle. Um, you know, I think we, we talk about Universal Music a lot, but, but let's say Gameloft, which is a Vivendi um, business. I think that in the music industry and the film industry, partnering with, you know, partnering with brands is a fairly well-established factor within those industries because they're well-established industries. The gaming industry, which, as you know, is, I think, bigger than the film industry right now. I think that brands have barely scratched the surface in terms of what's possible within gaming. Um, I mean, I'm sure anybody with kids has watched their kids become world-class at Call of Duty and uh, Fortnite during <laughs> during the past 12 weeks, <laughs> you know, the screen time. But but is there is there is so much opportunity for brands and marketing and then the coming together of music, gaming and uh, and brands within that space. And I think there honestly there's so much more that I think we can we can do there. Um, and uh, and that and that, that is one of the things that I, I think I think COVID, you know, strangely enough, I think 
one of the things with the whole working from home thing is that has helped break down, you know, we talk about the media creative barriers, for example, but you could say that in, to any, between any two companies trying to work together, there are challenges. Um, and, and the interesting thing with the working from home thing is I think that has in some ways broken that down. We've certainly found that. Is we found it easier to build integrated teams when everybody's at home because everybody's just at home. They're not on a different floor or a different office. They could be anywhere in the world. And you go, you know what, this project, it's you five. And you, you know, and off you go. And I think, I think that that has in some way, in some ways, it's facilitated not just work different ways of working in terms of working from home or in the office. It's facilitated different ways of working in terms of resetting interactions between um, some of our companies and different groups, and even with our clients. So, I think that's interesting. Terrific. All right. I think we uh, nailed it here, my friend. No, no, I really, really enjoyed that. Thanks so much for fitting me in. I really did. So I appreciate that a lot. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. An original music was by Ian Levy.